really explaining the background of this story, but it's once again pretty crucial that this morning we, we visit uh, the time period, what's going on. Um, we, we really need to understand the Ninevites, the city of Nineveh, uh, the empire it was, it was within today if we are to really understand this chapter. This chapter is a radical chapter. It's one of the, most, uh, one of the more radical chapters in all of scripture, I think, in terms of if you were the original audience and you were hearing this, like what it was really saying. So, um, yeah, so I, uh, I'm excited about this sermon. It's going to be pretty, uh, a pretty interesting sermon. So in this time, it was around uh, 8th century B.C., uh, the 700s, you know, in B.C., uh, Israel was in a period of strength. Jeroboam II was reigning. He reigned about 40 or so years Things were stable. They were actually flourishing. Seldom did this kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, actually flourish. Things were pretty erratic and unstable there. And at this time, Nineveh and uh, in the kingdom of Assyria, they were kind of ruling uh, most of that world at the time, but they were in actually a period of kind of a decline in this period um, where they weren't quite as powerful as they were just a few years prior. And so that's where Assyria found themselves. But nevertheless, um, they had about five kings in and out through Assyria during that time of when Jonah was preaching and it, during his ministry. And uh, just about, you know, 50 or 60 years earlier, Israel had um, experienced some pretty rough things because of Assyria. Uh, there's a, a plaque in the uh, Museum of London that shows King, I think, I think it was Joash, um, or Jehu. I think he was, yeah, Jehu. He was uh, bowing before the king of Assyria because... Um, he had been plundered, they'd been abused by them. Assyria, as we, as we said the past few weeks, they were not liked by Israel. In fact, they could be considered their enemies. Now we know that Jonah received the call from God to go and to preach to the great city of Nineveh a message of repentance of sin. And what did Jonah do? He bolted. He said, no way. I'm not doing this. And he ran to Tarshish, which they think is maybe Spain. He tried to go there at least, right? He's in the boat, dramatic events, big storm. They come, you know, they cast some lots. They figure out this, this mysterious traveler of ours, he's the guilty party here. And he's like, yep, I worship Yahweh. And if you throw me overboard, you guys will be spared. And they did so. And the guys responded by making lots of vows. I kind of laugh at that if you read um, you ever make like something dramatic happens and you're like, oh gosh, I promise I'll do this, I'll do this, I'll do this. That's kind of what they were, you can only imagine them sitting like, oh, I promise I'll, I'll do this forever. Anyway, so he's, he's in the water, a fish swallows him up and you have Jonah's prayer where he has this beautiful prayer of repentance right, that we saw last week. And then after this prayer of repentance in verse chapter 10, there was three days that went by and it says, and the Lord spoke to the fish, this is in chapter two, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Now, if you've uh, been involved in church to any extent in your life, um, or if you have kids and you find some cute little Jonah video, uh, there's a gazillion because this is like one of the more famous chapters in terms of like a kid's ministry and kids liking it, you know, fish swallows and whoa, you know, the whole you know, purpose of the story is lost. But if you see these little videos, usually you have this fish, it spits Jonah up, he's like a rocket, like pew, right? And he hits the dry land, he looks up, and there's Nineveh. The walls are like on the beach. And he's like, oh, okay, and he walks in the... That's not how things went down. Nineveh was about 500 miles away from the nearest coast, all right? 
I don't know where it is to say where Jonah was spit up, but he was spit up on the coastland from the water. And he didn't take the nearest bus to get to Nineveh or the, you know, quickest flight. If anything, he had a camel or something, but that was as fast as he could travel. 500 or so, maybe more, miles, probably on foot to get to this city. And some scholars even would argue that being inside of the fish the way that he was, all the digestive juices, his hair would have been gone, his skin raw, like he would have been scarred and messed up from spending three days into the, inside of the belly of a fish. So he looked pretty rough. Like he didn't look like he had a good weekend. He looked rough. And so he was traveling all the way to Nineveh. By the time he gets there, you know, I don't know how, how long that would have taken him, but he gets to Nineveh. We don't, we don't, you know, we're not giving time frames in this chapter. But he gets to Nineveh, right? Um, he responds to God's call. In chapter 3, basically Jonah, he gets a restart. He gets a restart. The language, look at verse 1 in chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. It's almost word for word the same as chapter 1, verse 2, when he says, Arise, go to Nineveh. He gets a second chance. And just by way of side mark, isn't that good to see? Right? Haven't you screwed up sometimes so bad and you're like, is this it? Like, is this like my last chance here? Um, God is a merciful God. He is a God of second chances. Isn't that awesome? So we have Jonah. He responds. He gets up, verse 3. Instead of running, what does he do? He arose. He went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. So as he travels, he speaks this message. He says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now it's not like he walks in the city and within like 24 hours, you know, the whole city, it says there's about a three days, you know, there's lots of, you know, thoughts as far as what that actually means. But scholars would say, again, all the smart guys, it's not me. The books that I've read said that it probably took him a couple weeks to travel around the city, preaching this message, actually get to every nook and corner and cranny. Think about uh, Nineveh being kind of like the ancient Tokyo or New York City or San Francisco. This was a cultural hub. This was an important city in the ancient Near East. It was, a, it was a big city. It was ginormous for that day. And it took some time for Jonah to actually travel around the city and to preach this message. But something literally unbelievable happens. Now remember, this is a pagan people. This is a harsh people. They are known for uh, committing unspeakable crimes against the people. They, they went around, they, were, they would topple nations. They would gather the strongest out of those nations, carrying them back home, send some of their people to go live in the land that they just took over. And they would do just the most unspeakable atrocities to the people that they would capture. These were not the prettiest people and the kindest people. They were awful people. But look what happens when he's preaching. Verse 4. Again, this, this helps if you read the Bible slowly. You catch things like this. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, yet 40 days, Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. So what day, how long did it take from Jonah preaching to them responding? A day. What, what is the Hebrews' emphasis here is the first day he was preaching, they're responding. Like day one. Now you can imagine Jonah, and it says from the greatest of them to the least of them. As he's preaching, it's not like some people are responding or a handful. The emphasis here is showing like 
everybody is listening to him and they're responding and they're repenting, right? The word gets to the king of Nineveh. He puts sackcloth on. He puts ashes all over his face. It's an ancient way of, of just showing like a, a, an external sign of what you're feeling internally, right? Everybody is responding to Jonah's message. Everybody is repenting. Everybody is crying out to God for mercy. Listen to what the king said. It's really remarkable. He says, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. This is an exaggerated response. He was like, uh, uh, maybe it's not enough if we only repent. Uh, animals, you have to fast too. Like he's, he's grasping for straws here, okay? He's desperate. You can see the desperation in his actions. And listen to verse 9. It's beautiful. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. There was no guarantee that if they repented, God would not still wipe out that city. There was not a guarantee. But guess what? For him, it didn't matter. He still wanted to repent. And he says, maybe God will give us mercy. Maybe he won't. It doesn't matter, though. We still need to repent. That's true faith right there. That is a... A, uh, the definition of faith to say even if ill comes my way for believing in you and trusting in you and even if there's still punishment due to me Lord I still believe you and I trust you and your goodness maybe you'll give us mercy we pray for mercy but regardless I repent before you that is a beautiful confession of faith when God saw what they did how they turned from their evil way God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Nineveh literally threw their future into the mercies of God, and God did respond, and he gave them mercy. So the challenges with sermons like this are pretty heavy. If you lived in Israel during Jonah's day, I mean, there was no printing press, something like that, like, you got a book, and you're like, oh, whoa, like, word of mouth. That's how stuff would have been down in those days, word of mouth. You would have been uh, the shock and awe factor of hearing Nineveh believes in our God? You mean day one they repented? Day one they responded to your preaching and the king put on sackcloth? Nineveh? The guys that do the most awful things in our world today, they're toppling nations and are the biggest bullies around. They believe in Yahweh, God? They repented? Are you serious? This would have been the biggest shocking news to, to Israel, as we'll see next week to Jonah. But this is about the Ninevites today, not so much Jonah. It would have been a complete shock. It's like I never would in a million years guess that would have happened. And it's almost to say, I don't know if I actually believe you. <laughs> that sounds literally unbelievable. So it's a radical chapter. It is a powerful chapter and it most definitely broke all expected social norms of that day. The enemies of Israel that had been toppling nations all around them experienced, they experienced Israel, their own oppression from Assyria, watched that very city repent before their God. So how do we really understand the breadth of something like this? The enemies of Israel respond to God and essentially become, through their repentance, the brothers and sisters of Israel before and they're worshiping the same God. How do we understand the gravity of this, right? There's two things happening. You have 
Israel's perspective, right, which is just full of, of their own prejudices, their own um, uh, thoughts about the Assyrians. And by the way, I mean, some of those thoughts will be legitimate because the Assyrians are not the best of people. But then you had God's perspective, which was entirely different, which was entirely different. He loved Nineveh. He wanted to have compassion on these wicked people. And what normally happens with us is when our perspective, which sometimes our perspective, we, we formulate, we create, we fashion, and we mold. And even sometimes we are convinced that our perspective has the backing of God. And we say, like, God approves of my perspective. All the while, we've, we've neglected this. And sometimes the most valuable moments in our life is when our perspective gets shattered into a million pieces and we let God be bigger than any kind of box that we put him in. And we say, wow, I did not see that coming. Wow, God, you are doing things that I never expected. This does not fit into my perspective. Lord, what's going on? I love those moments when it happens to me. I really do. And I think Israel got one of those moments and they heard this story. Jonah did, as we'll see in chapter 4. But how do we bring that into Today, I want to fast forward to the New Testament. Jesus goes even more explicitly and helps kind of explain what is going on here in the book of Jonah. Matthew chapter 6, 43, verses 45a, Jesus said this. And again, talk about something radical. This is a radical statement. I don't think, I haven't done, you know, read any book in the world or anything, but I'm pretty convinced that before Jesus, these words are not uttered. Because the words I'm about to read to you, they make no sense, they're irrational, and you, if you were to obey it, you get nothing out of this. Listen to these words. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. What good do you get out of that? What do you get from some kind of thing? Like love your enemies? That makes no sense. Why would Jesus say to love your enemies? Did you know in Hebrew, uh, Jonah chapter 3, the original language, behind the word Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, literally means, and so all your Bibles have a footnote that actually tells you this, it was an exceedingly great city to God. What was so great about Nineveh to God? Could it be that God actually cared for that great city? That it was a great city to him? And could it be that his people are the sent ones to go to those who the majority may view with disdain, who the majority do not trust, who the majority actually view as a threat or even their enemies? We know that elsewhere Jesus spoke the truth to people, the hard truth. There's two different Let's dig into what it means to love your enemy. What does it mean to love someone else? There's two aspects of this. And then we have to look at kind of the end point of why you want to deliver such love. The other aspect of, of love is found in Mark chapter 10. Uh, a few places Jesus does this. But familiar story maybe for some, the rich young ruler. Mark chapter 10, it says this. We'll read this together. As he was sitting, setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, talking to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? 
No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Don't murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Ten commandments, right? And he said to them, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, what does it say? He loved him. He loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, give to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. What was the love displayed in this paragraph here, the story? The truth. Right? Sometimes the most loving thing you can do is to tell them the truth. And Jonah, he dished out the love of God on the Ninevites. How? He told them the truth. He told them the truth. Paul gives a second component of loving. This is a really interesting verse too. Behold, never, this is Romans chapter 12, 19 through 21. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Loving our enemies, and for that matter, and anybody, involves two things. Tell them the truth as you are washing their feet, clothing them, feeding them, helping, serving them, while telling them about the good news of Jesus. It's a both and. Those two things are not separated in Scripture. So we just constructed what it means to love your enemies. And the end goal of this is that people, all people, all people understand they were created in the image of God. And that they, through the, son, through the Son of God, Jesus Christ, can find forgiveness of their sins and be with him forever and ever. Flourishing as they finally understand why they were here on this earth. Why they have skin and bones. Who their creator God is. And they can find access to him through Jesus. That is the end goal of why we are to love our enemies. Who is the deliverer of justice against our enemies? Is it you? Paul said no. Leave the vengeance up to God. God sets up... um, Government, Romans chapter 13 tells us this. Government exists to be the deliverer of justice, right? And so God has ordained that institution. Through that institution, God delivers justice, and he himself oftentimes does it through other means. But as for you, Christian, entrust that vengeance of your enemies up to the Lord. But as for you, go and serve them and love them and feed them. So as we finish that portion, we have to kind of build this bridge. We just looked at God's love for the Ninevites, looked at what Jesus said to help us understood the love that he had for the Ninevites, and now we have to build a bridge connecting from those ancient centuries to the 21st century modern-day America. What can we possibly draw as application from this? Maybe you're walking around saying, well, I don't really have, like, enemies. Like, nobody's after me to, like, kill me, or there's no, like, you know, like some invading other nation that's ready to, like, you know, just invade our shores right now. I mean, there are some enemies in our world that if they heard that you were an American and you happen to be on their soil, it may not go well for you, right? So we're not oblivious to the fact that there are some enemies of Americans, right? If you say I'm an American, you may have some enemies somewhere in the world. But as far as our day-to-day living is what I'm trying to be focused on. There's some bigger picture stuff, but week-to-week, day-to-day, or even, uh, I don't know, potentially week-to-week, day-to-day soon. What are some ways that we can understand this and 
are there things in our lives that need to be shattered to really understand how we are to live this out? One of my passions in life is that in our world of um, fast-moving information, in our world of, of, of images and, and video, and, and uh, we are shaped by these things um, more than we'll ever understand to our deepest core, we have to think like Christians. And it is so much harder than you may realize to actually construct a Christian worldview. When I say worldview, meaning how you understand the world we live in and how you are to respond to the world we live in, to actually construct something like that and to deconstruct things that are mixed in what we may think is uh, biblical or maybe we aren't even realizing that we uh, 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 would um, assent to them, but they are actually anti-Christian. I think we, we are essentially living in our nation. It's so easy to be torn and us not even realize it, that we want, yeah, we want a Christian worldview, but we also have so many other things that are just of nothing of Christ inside of us. And that's our struggle in our nation I want to construct a Christian framework to understand what it means to love your enemies. I want to bring this home. I want to alter the story. Track with me. You may start feeling uncomfortable. That's okay. Instead of Jonah going to the Ninevites deep into the Syrian empire, what if Israel had adopted immigration policies similar to ours? And many from Nineveh were traveling to Israel, living within its borders, becoming citizens. These people were there for many generations, began living close together, creating their own communities within communities. And then these people started building homes close to you, buying up neighborhoods not very far from yours. The economy was changing because of it, not necessarily for the better. Many of them spoke your language that many of them did not. They don't celebrate the holidays everyone else celebrates and in fact have their own. They all dress very differently from you, but all of them dress the same. And all of them are often mocked because of it. The reputation began spreading that they were not very kind or nice, and a few of them actually were doing some pretty wicked things, things that you wish were not done in the county and cities that you live in and are winding up in jail because of it. Those few instances have become the, well, I see, I told you they're all bad moment, where the entire community is now stereotyped because of the few bad ones. You had some interactions with them also, and your opinion of them agrees with that reputation. Many people speak ill of them. The city regularly has town halls where residents complain about the expansion of their community into yours and how they can stop it, and you're worried about your house value if they get too close to you. Do you see where I'm going with this? May I throw out the word Lakewood if you are confused? How does the church respond to something like this? Week in and week out, I hear Christians say things about Lakewood that are awful, harsh, just mean. Do they need the gospel also? Could it be that the church should be known as those who are willing to love them, washing their feet and serving them and sharing the good news of Jesus with them, expecting nothing in return? Hold the thought. Another example. Let's say theoretically Jersey allows 2,000 immigrants from a war-torn country in the Middle East. 500 are settled in Ocean County. They are primarily Islamic people from a nation that is known to house terrorists. How would you feel? How quickly would you volunteer to go and try to befriend them and aid them with clothing, food and supplies, and adequate shelter? 
How quickly would you raise your hand and volunteer to go tell them the good news of Jesus? Do they need the gospel? Do they need to be loved and taken care of? And who should be the first to do so according to the words of Jesus, love your enemies? I'm not saying these people are all our enemies. I'm relating to the fact that our culture and our cities, we are taught to have a disdain towards these communities. We are taught to not like these communities and have a raised eyebrow towards them. What does Jesus say? Love them. Now please hear me here, I'm not, I'm not making political statements, I'm not saying they should or should not be expanding in Lakewood or that refugees should or should not be allowed here. Whole different conversation. We can talk about that some other time I guess, but not here. I'm talking about your Christian responsibility to these people. So let's stop right here. I understand you're probably feeling uncomfortable. But listen, we are called to love all people, the good ones and the perceived bad ones, or even the bad ones. Jesus did not give a qualifier. Go love your enemies, but, you know, your life could be at risk. Not, not those, but love your enemies. There is no qualifications. All people are to be loved by us. We are to tell them the truth while washing their feet. The well-behaved and the evil. Those who speak different languages. The ones who live differently from you. We are called to love them all. Can you swallow the truth that the kingdom is open to all who repent of their sins? And can you stomach that you are the sent ones to go and share the good news with them? Weren't the Ninevites the same? And was the result that they heard? What was the result when they heard the truth? Could it be that God has something big in mind with these people groups, something radically unexpected? And could it be that he wants to bring it about through you and through Redeemer Fellowship? You're the sent ones. And thanks to our melting pot in America, we have many, many people from various ethnic groups that need Jesus living around us. Whether you like them, whether they like you, whether they have a wonderful reputation or an offer one, Jesus' words still stand clear. His heart for Nineveh still shines through. Love your enemies. Now as we close, I want to share with you a remarkable, absolutely remarkable story. Um, there's a book written about it. I haven't read the book yet, but... I found this guy's interview, his own words. It was really tough to hear, but I transcribed what I could. Um, during World War II, uh, it was all over. Germany has surrendered. There's the Nuremberg trials, right, with all the generals and the, the hierarchy officials from, Nazi, from the Nazi world. They were on the international trial, the first of its kind, for all the atrocities committed, all the millions of people that died, um, all the, the, the world war they caused. These guys were the guilty ones. These guys were guilty. All the communities were going to, commit, you know, sentence them to death. America, um, somebody was gracious enough to say, let's send them chaplains. For the last, you know, season of their life, let's send them chaplains um, to comfort them. And, and so they sent two guys. One of them was Henry Gorecki. All right. Now just imagine this guy's job. His job was to go. Look these men in the eye who were literally responsible for the death of millions of people to sit and look them in the eye and to minister to them. A true modern day Jonah in, some, in a more extreme example, right? So he goes and I was listening to his stories and meeting some of these guys and some of them were just the hardest of hearts. One guy's wife flipped out on him and said, leave my husband alone. Like, you know, it wasn't always a welcome thing, but one guy 
I don't listen to all the stories, but one guy he met with, his name was Wilhelm Keitel. Keitel. Wilhelm Keitel. Keitel was essentially one of Hitler's primary right-hand men who sold out to the flattering of the tyrant at all costs, became a yes-man to Hitler, was there when Hitler planned all the major campaigns, shook his head yes, laid himself down to Hitler's command. Even the Nazis didn't like this guy. This guy was kind of a, a coward figure. He was still very powerful. Nobody liked him. And this is from his own words. This is from Grecki's own words when he met with Kaito. Just listen to this. But on the next day, I met a very interesting fellow, Wilhelm Kaito. I come into his cell, and he's reading a book. When I asked to know what it was, he passed it on to me, and I discovered it to be his weather-beaten, sun-worn Bible. I was surprised, ladies and gentlemen, to see a Nazi with a Bible in his hands. I asked him what he thought of it, and then I heard some of the most wonderful confessions of the faith that I have ever heard in my life. He said as he stroked the book, I've carried this book through both world wars, and I'll carry it to my death if I'm lucky, and I have no I know from this book that God can love a sinner like me. I know that Jesus died for me. I've never been a good Christian. See the torment in this guy's soul? He realizes, I've never understood Christianity. I, I, I've, never, I've been an awful supposed, you know, supposed believer in Jesus. I've been awful. And this is um, Grecky's response. When he said that, I wondered how many good Christians I know. I don't know many good Christians. Honestly, I don't. This is what Grecky said. The only goodness we have is the goodness of Jesus Christ and his perfect righteousness that we have by faith in his atonement and meritorious work. That's all the goodness we have, whether we are in America or German Europe. Mr. Keitel then said, I talked to God. I prayed for forgiveness of my many sins. I know that his blood has washed away my sins. And then he said, chaplain, I ask that you move over as I have my daily devotion. I accepted. And as I listened, obviously that man has been reading from his Bible. And when he kneeled, he folded his hands and he began to pray, looking heavenward. He prayed to God for mercy. Just picture this. This Nazi former general, knowing his life is going to be to an end. He's pouring into his scriptures and he's on his knees begging God for mercy. It sank into my heart to such a degree that I got over next to him on my knees. And in a moment, we were praying the Lord's Prayer together. I left Mr. Keitel with the conviction that I had just met a Christian. A new one, a very weak one, maybe, and a very poor one. But I met one who knew the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. And that will make you a Christian in any land. I was very happy I met Mr. Keitel. I went upstairs to my American counterparts and told them what happened. They pulled me apart for it, started calling me all kinds of names. I went to the commanding officer there and they sent me home because of it. That I was getting too charming with a Nazi because I knelt with him and prayed with him and for him. One of Hitler's right-hand men became a Christian shortly after his death. Do you believe it? Does God have room for such people? Could you have done what Grecky done, ministering to and loving these Nazi generals and leaders, knowing that they were responsible for the death of millions? There's room for everyone in the kingdom of God. Now, I'll be correct, incorrect, as we're ending here, to say, go be like Jonah. 
Go share the good news of Christ. Go be like Henry Gorecki. I'll be incorrect because the truth is Jonah was a deeply flawed person. We'll see. Jonah had some problems with Nineveh's response. He wasn't okay with it. We'll see that next week. You would fail to live up to somebody else's standards and you would fail to live up to your own standards. The only person we must look at is the one who never messed up. The one who never had any prejudices, prejudices in his heart. The man who sat with a Samaritan woman at the well, an adulteress. For all better words, she was a whore. Sitting by the well, alone, and Jesus sat with her. The Jew her. She was, they were racist towards the Samaritans and he sat with this woman breaking all social norms and told her about himself and she rejoiced and it looks like she placed her faith in him. We look at the one who crossed over Israel's borders to the man who was filled with demons living in a graveyard who next to him was a herd of pigs, Jews. They said the pigs were unclean. This is a place where a Jewish man should not be and he went over, crossed that border and met that man face to face pushed those demons out of him, and the man believed in him. Jesus was willing to go time and time again to touch the leper, the ones if you touched, you became unclean. He would touch the lepers. He would do whatever it took to all people if they were to know him and repent of their sins and believe in him. He didn't care about social norms, guys. His goal was the expansion of the kingdom of God and human flourishing that they may know why they exist and that they have all their purpose in life wrapped up in him. Any hope that they have is wrapped up in Jesus. That's what his concern was, and that is our concern. So as he leaves this place, don't be like Jonah. Don't be like Henry Grecki. Be like Jesus. By the power of his spirit, as we look back to what he has done, he can empower us to do things supernaturally that we don't have it inside of us to do on our own. He can help you love the unlovable, help you um, push through whatever reputation you may gain from breaking societal norms of today and go over to those people that you may be radically uncomfortable with, expect nothing in return, and to love them and to share the good news with them. Let us pray. Jesus, I, I, I pray, um, help us to see this world through your eyes. Help us to not see the world through our own created lenses, whatever um, radically imperfect um, lenses that our, our, our cultures and cities and areas have. We want to see this world. We want to have your perspective. Jesus, thank you for being our example. You loved all people because they are, are all in the image of God and they need you. May we be your messengers and ambassador to all people this week. And we pray this in your good name. Amen.